The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you all tuned in yesterday for my hour here on the Autism Live podcast-a-thon, Stories from the Spectrum. I am so beyond thrilled and excited today uh, to welcome my very special guest, Dr. Peter Gerhardt. Uh, Peter has more than 30 years of experience with the principles of ABA in support of individuals on the autism spectrum in education, employment, residential, and community-based settings. He's the author and co-author of a lot of articles and book chapters on the needs of adolescents and adults on the spectrum and has presented nationally and internationally on this topic, including with me, which is how I got my start in the topic we'll be discussing today, which is autism and sexuality. Uh, he's the founding chair of the Scientific Council for the Organization for Autism Research, OAR, and he sits on a whole bunch of different professional advisory boards, um, including behavior analysis and practice, the Cambridge Center for Behavioral Studies, the Association of Professional Behavior Analysts, and the Autism Society of America. And he is currently the executive director of the Epic School in Paramus, New Jersey. Please, everyone, help me in welcoming Dr. Peter Gerhardt. Thank you, Amy. I'm very happy to be here. You are one of my favorite people. So oh. it's, a, it's a great honor to be with you. Thank you so much, Peter. And just to remind everyone that we are currently live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and Twitch. Um, so feel free to use any of those outlets to ask your questions. We'll be collecting those. We'll be able to see them on our screen here as well. And we'll make sure that we get to those questions uh, either throughout the presentation or by the end. And this episode, along with my episode yesterday, will be available for a free download next week. So you have lots of ways to watch, even if you can't watch live today. So again, welcome, Peter. You, you have such a large swath of experience in this area, and I'm excited to talk about this with you. Um, again, just to, to bring those up to speed who may not know, it's been exactly 10 years since I first presented on autism and sexuality, and I did that with you, Peter. Uh, I remember at an event in Virginia at a church. At a church. <laughs> yeah. Um, and somehow neither one of us burst into flames. I'm not sure how. Uh, still to this day, but that was my first taste of presenting in this area. Um, although, as I mentioned yesterday, I found myself entering into the world of autism and sexuality through a variety of paths throughout my life, through my own lack of any sense of shame around this topic and feeling comfortable discussing it. And so I'm curious uh, to know from you, Peter, what was your path into autism and sexuality? How did you get into this area? Uh, um. It- it was because I had always worked in support of um, older individuals. And if you work with older individuals, you, you don't get to be a specialist anymore. You have to be a generalist. Like you have to look at all aspects of life um, and, and how that person defines their life. And that includes sexuality. And, you know, the idea of how do we best support people to have a healthy, safe sexual life while also understanding who they are sexually and and all that, I think is just a central human right. So that's where the, that's how I, I never intended to, I didn't necessarily go to school for it. Um, But then I started to study it up and, you know, it just became part of what I do. And at the time there were very few of us who did it. So I sort of uh, got to speak and then I, I, asked you to join me that time, which was phenomenal. I don't know if you remember, but um, at the end of the talk, there were like 15 people lined up to ask you a question, and I had one. <laughs> so, well, yeah, well, so well, definitely a rock. I, I, I do uh, remember. I know, you know, it was really interesting because we approached it in a way that you did kind of the clinical side, and I did more of the personal side of autism and sexuality, and that was what I think really reached people in a lot of ways because there, there weren't people talking about this, right? So um, Temple Grandin, who was an incredible pioneer and who's done so much work as an autistic advocate, she doesn't you know, talk about sexuality. That's not an area of, of her interest. So it, it's really, it really is kind of a, it's still a new thing for someone who's on the spectrum to talk about 
sexuality and relationships um, kind of in, in that frank way. And uh, yes. in, in just this year, I actually uh, presented at a conference in Utah where the entire pre-conference was dedicated to uh, autism and sexuality, which is something I've never had happen before. I was the opening keynote for it. And all of us who were presenting at it were kind of looking at each other like, this never happened. You know, this is, we, we have overlaps in our, in our topics here. And actually one of the presenters, uh, well, well, you were supposed to be there. Unfortunately you couldn't make it, but right. uh, Je- Dr. Jess Kauke was there. Uh, and you and I and Jess have co-authored a book chapter uh, together um, in the handbook of yes. quality of life for individuals with autism spectrum disorder. So we've co-authored a chapter about autism and sexuality. And so we, we see now that the need for this topic has grown exponentially. The need was always there, but suddenly people are paying attention to it. Um, why is this such an important area to address? Why is it so important for us to have these conversations about autism and sexuality? Um, first of all, I just want to comment on something um, that you said, which was, you know, you spoke from the personal point of view and I spoke from the more clinical point of view. And I think that's an important distinction that, that I in no way assume I truly understand what it's like to be you. You know, I just know what the research says. I know what we're working with a number of people, how I can do some things. But it's important that like in every area of support, that that whatever you do is collaborative. There is no, you know, I work for the person. You know, I don't impose my thoughts, ideas, wishes on them. Their, Their life, their choice. You know, so I think that that's really important. Um, what was your question again? <laughs> uh, why is it so important for us to have these conversations about autism and sexual health? Well, I, I think we don't like having these conversations anyway. Um, you know, TMI, too much information. Like um, having an open, honest conversation about human sexuality um, is a very rare thing among you know, neurotypicals, uh, people on the spectrum, like wherever you are in life, like that open and honest uh, conversation is just, um, you know, we bring into it like religious shame. We bring into it like social norms. We bring it to it into it like repressed feeling. It's, it is just so complicated on one hand, but it's complicated because we've made it complicated. Yes. You know, it, it doesn't have to be complicated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the speakers before were just talking about like having open, honest conversations and honesty is, is the important part. And, and it's mm-hmm. when we, we try to shade things differently or use euphemisms for stuff. And that's where all the confusion um, and hurt comes in, I think. So just be, you know, we need to have these conversations. Vagina is not a bad word. Penis is not a bad word. You know, you know, neither. Like, am I allowed to say like the other words on this on your show? Sure. Yes. If you don't mean, yeah. I mean, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, no. Neither is, is dick or pussy. Like those are like words that many people use. You know. Now I don't recommend that. Like you use it in a courthouse. Well, know, no, but, but, I, but well, in this context. It's important because kids use slang terms. They don't necessarily use the medical terms. So it's for social context that you're going to be lost. If, you know, like we've said, how many words are there for arm? An arm is an arm, but there's a million slang right. terms for a penis. There's a million yes. slang terms for vagina. So that is, yep. and, when, and like you said, when we talk about sexuality, it's often from the side. It's often in another kind of code. So it's like learning a whole different language. And so you need to be aware of, of those terms as well as the proper clinical ones. So I, I, yeah. I mean, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I like to point out that like no male has ever gotten um, kicked in the scrotum and then said, ow, my scrotum. (laughs) (laughs) It's my ball. Like we don't use like in the moment we don't use those. And I think an important point that you said is that they continue to change. They evolve. Yes. You know, the younger generation brings in their own terminology for it that I have no idea what they're talking about. You know, mm-hmm. I have to, that means I have to ask. I have to be brave mm-hmm. enough to ask, you know? A really good example is one one term I, I see now is, is they use the word riz in place of charisma. They say riz. Oh. And I'm like, 
all, all I think of is Rizzo from Greece. And I'm like, how are we getting Rizzo? Yes. So if you didn't know that, you, you know what I mean? And then another example on, on TikTok, I think it is, they use, they, they use uh, mascara and they talk about makeup as euphemisms for sexual assault to avoid the content filters so that, you know, videos you know, don't get censored. Or, you know, so, right. but there was an instance of a, a young woman, a, a popular TikTok user who was on the spectrum uh, commented on someone's thing and thought that they were actually talking about makeup. Didn't understand that this was a, a code for, you know, for sexual assault for, you know, these, and, and then it turned into this whole thing. Um, like, cause she, cause she wrote something about, Oh, I'm, I'm so happy you found a mascara. You like, which one is it? You know? And the person's like, are, are you saying you're happy that I was sexually assaulted? And then and, and no, she just didn't, didn't, we don't know. Right. Because so that's exactly that illustration. Yeah. I think perfectly. Yes. No, absolutely. And it's, you know, they said this in the, the previous session too, like it, it, it baffles like everybody from like everybody on the spectrum, everybody just off the spectrum, everybody around, you know, it, it's, it's confusing. We make it confusing. That's the thing. So yes. And it, it shouldn't yeah. be. And this is because this is such a massive yes. part of the human experience. We we think that you know we would want to get it right. We would think we'd want to be proactive instead of reactive. But all too often, that's that's the approach we end up taking in this area. Is we we seem to wait for something terrible to happen before we decide to to do something. Um, and when I think about this, I always think of how you talk about you know um, what's more important for a kid to be able to name all the colors and be able to cross the street safely. We don't say okay, we'll wait for Tommy to get hit by a car and then we'll teach him how to cross the street safely. No, we teach someone to cross the street safely before they get hit by a car. So right. why why is that something we don't do here? What why is this one of those barriers to you know to to um providing comprehensive sex education? And what are some of the other barriers that are out there? Um I, I think the the biggest barrier is um societal discomfort with the whole topic. Um you know, it's it's funny because I work with um, individuals on the spectrum who aren't very conversational, so they have more they have more challenges. Um, and I still sometimes hear people say, um, "Well, I don't think their parents are ready to talk about sex." And I'm like, every parent I know knows their kid and understands this. Like they are not like they want us to deal with it. They want mm -hmm. us to help them. But for some reason, we think that they're not going to want to talk about it. No, they're waiting for us to to bring it up. And then, um, you know, we, people don't want to even use the correct terms. Like I've been in meetings where people say, well, you know, like he sometimes attempts to, you know, and they point to their crotch and they're like, you know what I mean? Like, And I say <laughs> masturbate, <laughs> you know, so, you know, you add all that. But I think the one of the biggest challenges is that we just wait too long you know we all started to learn about sexuality when we were little kids you yes. know with our family we learned about like who can touch us and who can't and how we were held and how we like to be held and you know then all these other skills built upon those skills mm -hmm. you know and you know and i think for folks on the spectrum in particularly they often get denied access then to even good basic information. Like, I don't know why that is. Yeah. Um, like, cause they're, you're going to run amok. I don't like, like we like taught you like what a vagina is and you're going to go crazy. Like it's that fear. I think a lot of parents have, if I tell my child about sex, they're going to want to go out and have sex. And, and that's, right. you know, categorically not true. And everything you just said actually ties into a question we have here from a Yaima, which is, uh, what age do you think is good to get a conversation about sexuality with your autistic child? And I've been asked this when I give my presentations, and I always think of what you say, which is earlier than you think, which is needing to think about what a child needs to know five years from now, 10 years from now, um, you know, because what's cute when they're five is not so cute when they're 15 and will get them thrown in jail when they're 25. Um, and so, right. again, people, I think part of what we know, and this ties into what we're talking about, about barriers, is that people hear sex education and they think it's only about sex. Um, and it's not. We're, we're teaching people how to live life. And so those conversations that can start to be had, I would say even as early as kindergarten, is about things like bodily autonomy, like boundaries. Right. Would you agree? 100 percent. Yeah. I mean, like who can touch you and who can't touch you? Like not to the 
you know, the, the couple that were on before, uh, not, no, it wasn't the couple. It was the parent to parent and the woman talking about having a compliant child. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I understand her point of view and compliance is, is good for all of us, but the most important safety skill your child could have is to be non-compliant. Yes. You know, I think you and I had the same thoughts. <laughs> yes, I'm sure we did. You know, you want them to be able to say no. You want them yeah. to be able to push away. Like you want, um, and I think, you know, we've gotten very good at teaching people to be compliant. You know, now we have to get very good at teaching people how to be effectively non-compliant. It's an advocacy skill, you know? And a safety skill. It's just, you know, again, if we, when we have these conversations around autism and sexuality, it's usually from the framework and perspective of safety, keeping people on the spectrum safe and saying no is a safety skill. Being able to effectively say no and have that no respected is the other piece, right? right? That's what I think a lot of times clinicians, BCBAs and parents aren't so great at is accepting the no from, from children on the right. spectrum. And absolutely no disrespect to Shannon, who was in that video and who is a wonderful person. And I also understand her perspective, but we do have to you know, think of the fact that overcompliance is a dangerous thing in these situations. Um, it, it creates vulnerability in a lot of folks on the spectrum, right? No, oh, abs- absolutely. Absolutely. It, you, you need to uh, develop the skills to protect yourself um, from any unwanted contact or behavior around you. You know, that's, that's, again, it it comes down to being a human right. Like it's not a, um, this is not like just another IEP goal. You know, this is a, an essential right. Um, And we know rates of um, sexual abuse of individuals on on the spectrum and uh, are higher than they are for, you know, neurotypicals what's the correct term now is that is neurotypical still an acceptable yeah neurotypical so some people say holistic i prefer neurotypical but you know normies okay. i don't know okay i just i just don't want to offend anybody by using the wrong term no. um you know we neurotypicals like are vulnerable to sexual abuse at a fairly high rate and it's underreported but people on the spectrum are like such potential perfect victims like they often were taught to be very compliant they were never taught taught how to report something they were never taught what was good or or bad about touch um they often have people helping them in the bathroom helping them in the shower helping them get dressed you know the group that i work with um and that's not good like like all of those things should be considered safety skills like toileting independently is a safety skill showering independently is a safety skill uh Changing your clothes is a safety skill. Like you want to be able to do that independently, you know, so a huge focus. So with the conversation of, you know, starting early, like think about starting early with that, mm-hmm. you know, teaching kids to close and lock bathroom doors, you know, you know, sometimes you, parents get a little wiggy about that. Yes. Yes. But well, I think you brought up something interesting. You talked about touch and you talked about, again, when we're, when we're talking about abuse, especially in assault, we talk about, um, you know, keeping people safe and we forget that, you know, sexual touch is also supposed to be pleasurable. And we, we I think it's, we, we neglect that by not telling people on the spectrum, like, this is supposed to feel good. But if if someone abuses you, it might feel good, but that doesn't mean that you enjoyed it, right? Like, that's a, you know, that's a thing that I think gets lost a lot of the time is that because of all the shame we introduce into sexuality, we, people get confused and they think that there's something wrong with them if they, you know, had a physical sense of pleasure at, at, at this, you know, at these sensations, right? So, I think right. if, if, if from the outset, when we talk about safety, we also you know, talk about pleasure. That is another way to keep people safe, right? To let people know yes. that this is meant to feel good and this is the context and this is what this means or doesn't mean if, if you experience this, if you are abused. Yeah, no, you know, Jessica and I talked about it recently that, you know, in the discussion of human sexuality, which we've, we've actually started to have much more openly, um, the idea of pleasure, like often isn't brought into the, the, the discussion because, you know, teaching people about pleasure and how to achieve pleasure and how to like, you know, even how to masturbate, like, yeah. like is where people like, that's where like they slam on the brakes and they go, yeah, you know, um, Frank Cicero, you know, do you know Frank? I do. I do. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he published an article a couple of years ago where he looked for, um, uh, interventions to teach people on the spectrum how to safely masturbate. And there were, 
none. Mm. Yet there were, in another article, like 30 different articles on how to decrease masturbation, problematic masturbation in people right. with autism. Because like, that's how we still view it, you know? Yeah. But I think even when we, t- I, there are there is starting to be more of that now about teaching safe masturbation, but there still seems to be a, a reluctance and a hesitance to really focus on the pleasure aspect. Like it's just kind of utilitarian uh, in, in the instruction that yes. exists out there. It's It's sort of sterile. You know, like yes, of course we want we want it to be how to and instructive, but we're like we're leaving out the fact that it's supposed to feel good. Like we want people to be prepared not just for physically what's going to happen that that there might be ejaculation, there might be this liquids or whatnot, but what the sensations would be like. What the you know what I mean? That, right. that I feel like that's a huge piece of context that is often just absent and 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 missing. And that and it, it, it's 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 part of keeping people safe as well because if you're taught what you enjoy and what 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 sensations your body likes, what you don't like. That's that's how you learn to know yourself, right? And that, you know, because when you don't, when you know, when you don't know your body and you don't have that sense of self awareness, it makes you inherently more vulnerable. Um, that certainly right. was the case for me, you know, in in my early sexual experiences. I even remember with my college boyfriend, you know, after we finished fooling around, and I would ask him if I enjoyed something, because I was so clueless about my own body, and I so. And I figured, right. you know, that he was more experienced and he knew better. And I didn't know how to listen to my own body. And I didn't know if something felt good or didn't, or if he, if something didn't feel good. And he'd say, oh, all, all my other girlfriends like that. I thought something was wrong with me. I thought that I was broken. Right. right? So, so yeah. pleasure is fundamental, I think, to safety as much as it, you know anything else. A hundred percent, you know, um, and I, I think this discussion is just emblematic of how complex the whole issue is. You yeah, know? like oh, exactly. You know, yeah, <laughs> uh, and why we have to start so early because it's such a, a complex um, skill repertoire. You mm-hmm. know, to it, physical and social and emotional. And like, you know, there is overwhelming. You mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, I'm. You know. My, my, you know, a, a relationship that I had for like seven years recently ended and I've been living alone for six months now. And I can't even imagine getting back into a relationship. Like, <laughs> it just seems so complicated to me from the perspective of a, an outsider male who hadn't had to worry about that for, you know, for a very long time. I mean, so yeah. I can imagine how difficult it is for, you know, someone on the spectrum who just, you know, doesn't have the information. I don't have that information anymore. You know, <laughs> um, I'm 62 and fat and, you know, <laughs> that's a different. No, you're 62 and, and adorable. Life. You stop that. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> but it's, so, no, you're it's absolutely just, right. And, and I think yep. especially, you know, as a woman on the spectrum, there are additional barriers and challenges that I have faced being a, you know, a woman as well and in trying to engage in relationships. And I had a psychologist speak with me recently who asked, you know, she has been speaking to parents of young girls on the spectrum who are just newly diagnosed. They're, they're little, I mean, they're like two, you know, three, four years old. And she's asking, is it too soon, you know, to be, to be warning them about, you know, because these things, the social constructs we start, we talk about are already starting to be visible in kindergarten. And she, she, you know, the parents get, I, I said, no, you're doing the right thing. You are 5,000% doing the right thing because Yes, what what girls and women on the spectrum are going to face is going to be different from what boys face fundamentally, and yes, parents need 100%. to be aware of those things. Yeah, and I think parents also need to be aware of that, like the sexual interest in schools with students. The age is getting younger and younger. You know, yeah. it, it used to be, you know that high school was, uh, you know, and then it was middle school and now it's creeping down to elementary school, mm-hmm. you know, that there's a, a, a misinformed awareness of human sexuality um, that their child's going to be exposed to yes. uh, at an early age. Yes. So deeply misinformed. You know, you really want to yes. So, so I mean, so then that begs the question, you know, thinking about all this, thinking about what we've been discussing, you know, what can we do better? Thinking about all the different, um, you know, stakeholders there are when we're talking about supporting individuals on the autism spectrum, parents, practitioners, BCBAs, and and, and the community overall, you know, this is something that concerns everybody. People often 
I think, you know, think that this is, oh, this is just for the family or this is just for the teacher. No, this is, this is affects the entire community that someone is a part of. So how, how can we yes. do better? Um, I, I think we have to realize that this, um, this skill domain, this topic, this part of human life um, requ- really does require a, a team. Like it can't be like separated out from other aspects. Like sexuality is not separate from communication. Sexuality is not separate from social. Sexuality is not separate from adaptive skills. Like sexual is like, like you need to actually look at in the context of all of those um, and how they impact this particular student. Um, and, you know, we haven't touched about it. I think we also have to, those of us, we neurotypicals in particular, um, need to translate the information we have now on um, gender diversity within the autism community into practice, not just into yes. statistics. You know, and that's kind of where we are right now. We're just at the statistic point. (laughs) Yes. Well, you you actually bring up a really uh, important point. I'm glad you you mentioned it, which is the fact that, uh, you know, our current kind of political social climate is so fraught when it comes to to trans rights, to, you know, um, and and there are actually more people on the spectrum who identify as LGBTQ, um, you know, gay, bisexual, lesbian, trans than in the neurotypical community. And that brings us kind of to to something I, I broached yesterday, which is the idea of intersecting identities and supporting people who you know, are not just autistic, but autistic and a woman or autistic and, and gay or autistic and trans. So how, how, you know, what do we do to support autistic people who are also identifying as LGBTQ, especially in these really challenging times? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think the first thing, quite honestly, is um, we need them to teach us what they need, <laughs> you know, because I don't know, you know, I don't know what the life experience is that they have. Like, um so teach me like like accept the fact that I'm a dope in that particular area and you know work with me and I can then help you get what you need um but I also the, the problem though is I think a lot of people don't know what they need because nobody's ever worked with them on yes you I was going to say yes that's yeah you know, if, if we're not taught that vocabulary, we're not taught how to describe our sexuality or gender identity, it's difficult to be able to express what those needs are. Or for some folks on the spectrum who, who do know and who are able to express that, it may not be safe to 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 express that to, to certain people, right? So that's that's a really big barrier is, is that even if someone on the spectrum is is trans and, and speaks about that to, to you as, as a clinician, they may not feel safe discussing that with their parents. They may come from a home environment that might not enable that to be a discussion they can have there. So how do we, how do we handle that when there is that, that kind of disconnect between. I, I don't have a simple, I mean, we live in a, in a world now where politicians think it's important to ban drag shows, you know, that, that, that becomes um, the big, it's like, it's like no, not guns. We don't want to do anything about guns, but drag queens and drag kings, like those are harmful. Yeah. You know, that's just fucking nuts, you know? So, but that's an example of like just how um, screwed up we are about the concept of human sexuality and Mm -hmm. the idea that if you're uh, gay, lesbian, trans, what, and like you're a drag, that you're grooming people. Like you can't groom people. Yeah, you know, you are who you are. You right. know, your existence like, is not the same as grooming someone. Yes, you know, it, it's just drives me crazy how mm-hmm. people like misunderstand. And then, and then it kind of it also further dilutes that meaning because grooming is a very real thing and something that I think yes. people on the spectrum are inherently vulnerable to. To and and then so yes. we're losing what that actually means. We're losing the people who actually engage in that predation and grooming and they're hiding behind this, right? They're hiding behind to disguise what they're doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, So I need to get back to it. Like I need people to tell me what they need. I want to know, like I want, 
to be able to help and to point people in the right direction. Um, because I think there are resources out there that may not necessarily be targeted towards someone who's autistic and trans, um, but there's some resources out there that might help anyway. They may not be specific for that intersection, but they still could be helpful. Does that make sense? That that absolutely makes sense, yes. And 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 what would you say you know, then to, to parents maybe who are also trying to or, or struggling to support their, their autistic child who might also be trans or gay or, or, or what have you? What, what would be something? Let, let's look at from both sides. Let's say you have a parent who's supportive, but the school is reluctant to address and then and then the reverse. Well, you kind of did the reverse, but what about the other way? Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, it's, I just would tell people, yeah, this is who your child is. Like, it's, it's neither good nor bad. It's just an is. And yes. they're, as a person, they're still the same person they were the, as the day before you knew this about them. So, you know, love them, care for them. They love you. They care for you. Um, support them. Um, I I think that's all any good parent should do in those situations, um, because it it's uh, it, it shouldn't change. I know it does. I, I know people get wiggy, um, but they're still the same person. You know yes. that the other half just has more knowledge about that person at the time. That's that's what sort of changes everything. But in terms of, you know, in terms of fighting for quality and comprehensive sex education in schools, we know that it can be very hard to get all the stakeholders on the same page. You know, thinking about that, what can either teachers and clinicians or parents do to get people on board with, you know, getting the school behind having, you know, sex education available um, to, to people on the spectrum? You know, well, one of the things that I've always um, argued is, um, in the beginning, you can talk about sex education just in terms of safety and personal knowledge. So personal like knowledge of yourself. So teaching, you know, who can and who can't touch you, who can help you in the bathroom and who can't help you in the bathroom. Like I said, closing and locking the bathroom doors. Those are all part of sexual education, but they're also safety skills. But then also teaching actual body parts like we, we spoke about, you know, um, and using actual words, you know, like right. vagina and penis. Those are fine, upstanding words um, in my life. You know, so like to not want to use those words, you know, and, or like to avoid that part of the body when discussing mm-hmm. body parts, you know, it, it's just simple science. Like there's nothing, you know, so it that's is, where you, you, where you get, get your foot in the door, you know? Foot in the door. No, absolutely. I, I agree. And I, what, what you're saying ties into a comment we have here from Mike, who says that one of the biggest challenges is that a lot of the words that, you know, are involve sexuality and sex aren't sometimes programmed into the communication devices that some people on the spectrum use to communicate. That's, that's a great point. Um, and also, by the way, you know, folks, if you have questions, please feel free to put them in the chat. We're almost about ready to you know, be taking any questions that you might have. So please feel free to ask us those. But what, so what do you think of that, Peter? The fact that we you know, that speaks to how sexuality is not assumed to be part of the experience for people on the spectrum. Right. Just. But to- yeah. No, 100 <laughs> percent. You know, uh, I remember like asked me like 20 years ago, um, who, what are the pick sims? My Myers-Briggs, the um, board maker stuff. Um, they had back 20 years ago um, a really good series of sexually explicit like line drawings, um, like with you know uh, an, an erect penis um, with like drops coming out of the tip for like ejaculation, and that, so they were talking about it back then. Um, but you're a hundred percent right. Like we don't want. Um, to put it on their, their augmentative devices um, when it should be. It's, yeah, it's dangerous, I think, not to have it on. Right. No, absolutely. Um, and I have to go back and look at all of our augmentative devices now and see what we're missing. So, 
I want to thank it was Mike. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, that was that was a really great point because absolutely, if you don't have those words, how do you describe if something's happened to you? How do you tell someone if if, if you've been harmed in some way or how you know that's 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 a very you know dangerous thing and it's it's that's kind of effectively a way of silencing people, right? We talk about silencing people from having mm-hmm. these conversations. We talk about the the bans we see passing across the country right now books that are being banned about sexuality. This is another way we, and this is inadvertent, I think. I don't think it's necessarily intentionally, you know, silencing people on the spectrum, but that that is, that's how you, you end up having victims suffering in silence when people literally don't have the language to talk about right. what has happened to them. So it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's very serious. Um, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Again, folks, if you have any other questions, please you know feel free to put them in. We're, we love talking about this stuff. Neither Peter nor I have any filter that we're aware of, so you could ask us anything <laughs> you want. Um, I also just want to mention that uh, you can support both of our work. You can support Peter by going to epicschool.org and donating to the Epic School if you're so inclined. And you can visit the RCAS website at rcas.ruckers.edu and donate to the RCAS um, part of the work I'm actually currently doing is that I have uh, earned, I have received a $25,000 grant to develop a sex education curriculum for people on the spectrum called the Adult Autism and Sexuality Kit, which I'm working on at the moment and learning very quickly how difficult it is to work on a grant, which I've never done before. It's my first as a principal investigator. Um, and and I am, as, as I've mentioned, I'm a relationship coach at the RCAS also, and that is, uh, you know, an something I do to work with the participants on these issues related to sexuality and relationships. And uh, I think we got some weird spam comments in here. Okay. Um, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is either. I just, that just kind of threw me off. I think it's in another language. Um, but uh, so, so yes, please support Peter's work at Epic. Please support my work at the RCAS. Uh, it would mean the world if you could do that. Um, and, and so, yes. So, I mean, uh, we've covered like so many incredible topics today, and I'm, I'm so excited about everything we've been talking about. Um, is, is there you know anything else that you want to make sure people leave here with? Something you really want people to know about autism and sexuality? Um, you know, not. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it ties into the whole thing, and I think um, one of the. Th- the big changes in the field that I've seen in the last, you know, 10, 15 years um, is this move to um, compassion, you know, and, you know, I don't, I don't use the term compassionate care just because it sounds like hospice. Um, I use compassionate intervention is what I, what I do. um, Cause that's what I teach. So, but I think this whole uh, it's, it's, pushed us to consider the whole person and especially as behavior analysts, like we're sort of taught to look at tiny pieces of behavior, you know, um, but that's not the person. Like we have to, whether it's sexuality or social or communication or employment or whatever, like we should think that our only goal is to change people's lives for the better in the direction they want them to change. Like that's sort of got to be um, the mantra as we sort of move forward and help people, you know, experience life as fully as possible. Uh, we have a long way to go, but we are moving there. Uh, so hopefully, we'll see what happens. Absolutely. You got to lead us, Amy. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying my best. Well, like I said, I'm, I'm on the Progressive Behavior Analyst Autism Council, which I'm hoping is going to lead the way in, in changing how we approach behavior uh, analysis. And, you know, in thinking about that, and especially you know, since a lot of the audience, I think, is, is BCBAs and uh, ABAs talked about a lot uh, on, on Autism Live. What, you know, what can BCBAs do and what can the field of ABA do to, to better address uh, sexuality and autism? Because I really don't think the field has stepped up in the way that it could. Uh, yeah, definitely not. Um, um, I think it's one of those things, again, we need to think in terms of skill development as opposed to decreasing behavior. You know, right away there's this sense of like, oh, that's inappropriate. That's That shouldn't like, excuse me. And it, actually, you know, it may be, but that doesn't mean we don't do teaching about well, when it is, when is it appropriate? 
you know, it's not appropriate to masturbate in the middle of class, but it's appropriate to masturbate at home in your bedroom, you know, with the door closed. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's really not appropriate to masturbate um, in the bathroom because other people come into the bathroom and like, mm-hmm. but if you're at home in the bathroom, you lock the door and it's like the family knows like that, you know, sometimes you have to go, okay, that's what we're, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, the BCBAs have to start thinking in, in big terms of behavior. Like, Sexuality is a big term. There are no small parts to it, you know? Um, and how do we, like, you know, Frank pointed out that there are no articles on teaching appropriate masturbation. Right. You know, we've been looking, you know this, Amy, we've been looking um, for grant money to do um, a website, uh, which is instructional masturbation videos um, that, you know, People, particularly people on the spectrum. So once we get it, we'll, we'll have like a consulting board of people on the spectrum. But we also realized that we're probably going to have like two or three male masturbation videos just because of differences. But we probably have to have about 10 different female masturbation <laughs> videos just because it's a more complex biological process. There's yeah. more areas for preferences. It's all... Um, so... But it's hard to get money for something like that. It's hard to get. Yeah. Um, it's like, well, we want to put masturbating people on because we want to have real people. We want it to be, you know, and people think it's porn and it's not porn. And, and exactly. You know, and we're all doing this. So I just went mm-hmm. off on a tangent. So I apologize. No, 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 that's OK. I mean, that raises such a great point, too, is that people just, you know, automatically jump to pornography and they're thinking that this is something that is, um, you know, and that is that, but that ties back into kind of what we talked about at the beginning uh, of this conversation, which is the the kind of the, the puritanical society that we live in, because we don't have these honest conversations about sexuality. Things that you know are, are meant to you know be like natural processes, they can't be discussed in just a, 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 a typical way. Like everything just becomes people we get very anxious and they go right to oh that's filthy, that's dirty, you know. So like, right. how can we you know? how can we get rid of that barrier? How can we you know, take away this, this kind of, again, it speaks to like the extremes of, of sexuality too, that we, you know, either like the horror of the Madonna, right? It's either total purity yeah. virginity or dirtiness. Yeah. Milk. No, I, I don't, I don't know, but I do think, you know, I mean, you know, I adore you. So this isn't, it's going to be, this is going to, isn't going to be sounding odd. Uh, I really think you are leading the way in a lot of this, stuff um, for people on the spectrum and for those of us not on the spectrum um, because of how you mix information with humor and accessibility. Um, I, you're the only person that I think could, ever, this is from the first time we spoke together and you talked about the realization of having pubic hair. And it was like the, the black forest you said, right? Yes. Like, the black forest. Like, yes. And I'm like, Nobody else could have said that. Nobody <laughs> else could have said that. You know, I say a lot and get away, but like you have this platform where you can actually be so brutally honest. My comment yeah. card. I told you about the, the sex comment yes. card. Yes, which is awesome. Um, I think everybody should have one. Um, but it's, it's, it's your honesty. And I think we need more people um, on the spectrum, again, to help teach us. Like, mm-hmm. like I said, I know the research. I don't know the life. Yeah. You know, so people got to, you know, help us, you know. And if I say, you know, you know, autistic sometimes instead of person on the spectrum or person on the spectrum, like, you know, like, don't get pissed off at me. It's like, just work with me to learn better. That's all. Like, Right. Well, it's, you know, yeah, I, I think it's, it's about, yeah, all, all those things tend to be, to me, they're not so much about the language. It's about people wanting to feel listened to and people wanting to feel yeah. acknowledged. Um, oh. And and I agree with you about us teaching and all that. But the other piece of that, the other piece that has to be there as well, is that people like you and parents and clinicians have to be willing to listen. Right. Because there are there are autistic people telling you all who we are. People are screaming it yes. out in every conceivable way, even if they're not using words to do it. But so many people don't want to listen. Parents don't want to listen. Yep. Clinicians don't want to listen. BCBAs don't want to listen. And that is that's that's the that, that's to my eternal frustration because, and I've said this before about other things like, for example, about having meltdowns. You can either 
have someone who can't express and articulate why they're having a meltdown and nobody listens to them or believes what they're going through. Or you can have someone like me who can articulate and express why I'm having a meltdown right. and nobody listens to me and believes me. So neither of those, <laughs> it doesn't matter, you know, whether right. someone, yeah. we, we need people to listen and we need people to believe us and to take action. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I think I've told you this before. Like I had to, I realized when we talk about like compassionate intervention and that, that I would sometimes, if I'm with a student who would have a meltdown over there's no more applesauce, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, part of me would think, Oh, toughen up. Like sometimes it's not going to be, but I finally dawned on me that like, that is a big thing to him. Like yeah. it's not important to me, but it's important to him. Yes. And I need to respect that about him and not just blow it off in my head as some minor disruption. You know, yes. he'll deal with the fact that half the building falls down, <laughs> but no, you know, because it's that important to him. And I have to learn to accept, you know, how he sees the world. Um, and it's much more fun when you start doing that, you know, it's, you, it's vital. Really I think it. it's, what you're, yeah, what, you're I talking, agree. what you're talking about is empathy, ultimately. And and empathy, yeah. again, is something that is considered to lack on the part of people on the spectrum. But really, most lack of empathy I've seen in my life has been from neurotypicals toward people on the spectrum rather than the reverse. And so we, we what we really need is to be more empathetic toward one another, to, to, yes. to view people on no. the, and to remember that, you know, when it comes to sexuality, um, we, we may have differences. But, but even though we are on the spectrum, we have so much in common. There's so much that is, is similar uh, yeah. between us as, as humans. And that's something I think that we, yeah. you know, and that's something I have people come up to me after I present and they say, I'm not autistic. And I totally related to that. I went through something like that, you know, and that's kind of the key yeah. thing is, is demystifying the autistic experience of sexuality yeah. and then taking away this, this belief that it's so other um, that, that people are too uncomfortable to address it. We have to stop with that othering, right. That really impedes these conversations. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's the, I agree a hundred percent with you, Amy. Thank you. We've, we've got just a few minutes left. Are there, if there's any other questions, please feel free to put them over in the chat. We can answer maybe just a couple more, but I, I want to, you know, again, thank everyone uh, for being here today. And uh, of course, thank my very special guest, Dr. Peter Gerhardt um, for all that he's brought to this conversation. I think that this has been an amazing conversation, and I'm just, and it went better than I could have ever dreamed. Um, I knew it would. I knew that. I know. I, I even made sure I had an outline, but I said we're not going to really need it. We're just going to talk like we always do. Um, and yeah. and I, you know, again, this is only the, the the tip of the iceberg when it comes to these conversations, right? This 100%. is yeah. so you know, knowing that, knowing the fact that you know, an hour is hardly enough time to to cover all this. What what can we tell people to do when when they leave here today? When they finish. Uh, with the podcast-a-thon, what's something that they can, you know, go out and do with this information to have more conversations about sexuality and autism in their communities? Um, I think, you know, if you're a, a BCBA, um, to start having those conversations um, with parents, you know, like, what do you want for your child in terms of this? Like, like and, and, you know, we saw this, you know, webinar podcast thing and and this is what they were talking about and i just want to you know here's the link and i want you to have this information and you know there's a lot of things we can do to stimulate the conversation um parents like don't be afraid to tell us what to do um you know or what you need like that's you know we need to know but we all just need to get together and freaking talk about this in real world terms because it's about people's lives um, and we've ignored it for too long and let people get abused for too long and left um, without any access to even holding hands with someone, you know, Absolutely. that they may feel close to. And, and it's yeah. important to mention that people have not only been abused, but have also inadvertently become perpetrators of abuse because we haven't taught a lot of these things. People on the spectrum end up in the criminal justice system at disproportionate rates, I, I think, you know, because... Of this lack of, although we're far more likely to be the victims of abuse, of course, as we said, but yeah, that's another, but yeah, right? Because the law doesn't make yep. a distinction. If, if nothing else, take from this that the law is not going to say, oh, your son's autistic, so we're not going to arrest him. 
you break the law, you go to jail. It, it doesn't matter. And, and then you end yeah. up on a sex offender registry, which is something that stays with someone for the rest of their lives. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so, And like you said, well, that's thank what you, Amy. Yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say thank you, Amy. It is always a great, great pleasure to hang out with you. Oh, and, yeah. and you as well. And and I just thank you, you know, for hammering home the point that this is about people's lives. That's what we're really talking about. We're not just talking about sex. We're not just talking about the physical act of, of sex. We're talking about things like intimacy, something that you build with people that starts well before, you know, you're ever thinking about getting in between the sheets with someone. We're talking about, you know, building human connections with other people, relationships. That's what this this really right. all comes down to. And that and those are things we start doing almost from the moment we're born, really. Our, our first relationship is with our parents. That's something that is kind of in, one that inherently, but, you know, and then we, but then we have to go into the world and build other relationships. And right. why, you know, why would we not want to give people on the spectrum as many tools as possible to do that successfully? Yes. Yep. Um, I think that's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted to have some good punchy closing comments. I, I, I hope that go. that well, you got it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Peter. Again, ladies and gentlemen, my and 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 non-binary folks as well, Dr. Peter Gerhardt, my wonderful guest uh, on the podcast today, and my thanks uh, again as well to Shannon Penrod and the Autism Network and Autism Live for having me as part of the podcastathon yesterday and today. Uh, I truly appreciate the opportunity. Uh, as always, you can find me on social media uh, at, at Amy Gravino on Twitter, uh, at Amy.Gravino on Instagram. I'm also on LinkedIn, and you can visit my website, uh, amygravino.com, to find out more about the work that I'm doing. Peter, do you have any plugs that you want to uh, throw in as we close? No, I would just go back to, like, if, you know, anybody has any spare change lying around, they would like to get rid of, like, we're always looking, we're about to open um, our adult program and adult programs are very expensive. Um, and it's, you know, the program is designed for employment and having people live in the community and be part of their community, um, an active partner community, not just like visiting the store. Like, you know, really that's the whole thing is that, and they're going to the store that they chose to go to, not that we put on the schedule. And so that's the whole, yeah, we're very happy about that. So anybody who, who is generous today, please, um, epicschool.org and there's a donate button. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, please donate. That's amazing that Epic is opening an adult program. We need more adult programs. And thank you for all the work that you're doing uh, to support autistic people through the lifespan. That is the other piece of this conversation is that it, we are talking about from childhood through adulthood. And, and, and that, is, that, that is the whole piece of this is having, helping people on the spectrum live whole, healthy and satisfying lives in every aspect of those lives. So uh, again, my thanks to Dr. Peter Gerhardt for being my guest today. Thank you all so much for tuning in. And I hope that you enjoy the rest of the podcast-a-thon. And I will see you all very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Amy. You. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>